Hey guys, thank you so much for stopping by Legend Church's weekly podcast. Just a quick reminder, you can check us out at legendchurch.com, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and Sunday mornings in Madisonville. But hey, without further ado, set the cruise control, start Matt Run, or grab a drink, and let's talk about all things Jesus. Good morning. It is, uh, it is really good to see you guys. I hope you're having a great day. Um, a couple people have asked, and if you didn't notice, standing outside by the, um, by like the, the sign-in booth or the, the new visitor booth sort of place where the greeters stand, our friend Andrew is here visiting us today. Andrew, you're here, right? Inside Andrew? There he is. Um, Andrew's been a missionary that Legend has supported for years. Andrew has been a close personal friend of mine for, since I was a teacher, so for a long time. And we, just, we love Andrew and his family and the work they're doing in their stateside this week. So make sure you connect with them and hear about the... We do a terrible job of telling the stories of what this church is doing generally. Um, Andrew's a great example of like, we got to help us support him and he's doing such, a cool, such cool work. You should go talk to him and uh, figure out more about that. And then you can go, we'll set up a mission trip and you can go live with Andrew for a week or whatever. Um, I didn't, Andrew didn't tell me that. I just volunteered his house. <laughs> um, we're glad to see you guys. So um, we're, gonna, we're in the third week of Advent. Um, the theme of Advent this week is joy, uh, which is why it's a pink candle instead of a purple, lighten it up just a little bit. Um, but um, before we get to our story, our, our story today is going to be, we're going to follow Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who's, he's got a weird story in the text because he's there primarily as a counterfoil to Mary. Because Mary's so good in the Luke text Zechariah is set up as the opposite, as the one who botches it. But before we get there, um, bring to your mind what story it is that controls, what's your story? What's the place you go to to help make sense of the world? And I'll give you an example, is that um, I was, we were doing something the other day, and my immediate reference point, the immediate metaphor that I grabbed for was a Simpsons reference. To explain The Simpsons, because I'm deep into the world of The Simpsons. I like The Simpsons a lot. My second reference is a South Park reference. And normally I will say, hey, did you see that South Park? And every adult friend of mine says, no, I did not see that South Park. What is wrong with you? And I can't in good conscience normally stand up here and recommend that South Park because they're aggressive. Um, But we all have stories that we've inherited that help us make sense of the world that we live in. Right? We have symbols that we, lead, that we latch into. We have ideas that control our thoughts and ideas. Um, sometimes they're philosophical. Sometimes they are um, just like work-based or whatever it is. You have an idea or you have a story that drives your imagination and your story. And that's going to be really important today. Um, there's a quote by Walter Brueggemann that said that one of the things that empires always do is empires will always take your story away from you because they will take away your past and they will prohibit your future. And he was writing in the context of the Exodus. And what he said is that when Israel comes out of Egypt, if you notice, what they do is they long to go back to Egypt because Egypt controls their present. Egypt says, we have food for you now. There is no future for you to worry about because we have food for you now. There is no identity for who you were in the past because food for you now. And the great tragedy of Israel in the Exodus is that they bought into that. Empire takes away your past 
Empire limits your future. And when we let the empire do that to us, we cease to tell a full and transcendent story. Brothers and sisters, the church worldwide, and especially the church countrywide, has allowed the empire to dictate our story to just here and now. And because of that, we lose something in the Jesus story. And so what I want, obviously, where, I'm, where this is headed, is I want us to be Jesus people where the Jesus reference is the first thing we look to to explain our stories and our place in the world. And to do that, we have to have a deep and long past, and we have to have a bright and hopeful future. The present doesn't make any sense without those things. So that's where I want to go a little bit this morning, and I'm going to make fun of Zachariah the whole time to do it. So let me pray for us, and we'll move into the scriptures. Lord, um, Lord, we imagine too small a thing. Lord, we are, we're, we're, we're concerned with what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and where we're going to live today. And we become a people without a past. Or worse, Lord, a people with somebody else's past. And then we become a people without a future. Lord, help us to expand our horizons. Help us to, to, to find ourselves in your story, in the, what, the work you've been doing. Help us to, um, Lord, to be joyful as we go into the future. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick up this story with the birth of Jesus' cousin. Last couple, like, first week we did uh, King Herod. Last week we did the shepherds, shepherds and angels. Um, and this week we're going to think about the birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is one of my favorite persons in Scripture because he was the one most likely to get in a fight on Twitter about everything. John Baptist, like, you should have seen me yesterday during this Bengals game. I was ready to fight everybody yesterday. Um, John the Baptist is the guy that's going to pick the fight every time he's going to pick the fight, and he's not scared of anybody in the fight. And when I'm really unhealthy, I'll be like, well, John the Baptist did it because that's clearly my role in the church. Um, um, but one of the things that I think, I reflected on this this week, and this is where I'm going to go with this story things. I don't know that for most of us, as we're processing God and his work in the world, or Jesus and the story and the people of God and how it moves from our ancient, ancient brothers and sisters to our future, future brothers and sisters, I don't know that we comprehend or process or meditate enough upon just how often the story involves some miraculous birth, around how the story involves some place where life comes from death, or where something comes from nothing, or where order comes from chaos, because all three of those are the same story in the scripture. And our friend Zechariah is a loyal priest to the people of Israel, and he's living in a story of the children of Abraham. And do you remember the children of Abraham? The children of Abraham wandering have been set from Persia. God calls them and says, you, leave Persia and come to this place that I'm going to give to you called Canaan. Come here, and then I'm going to give you a great nation. You're going to be huge. God gives them promises. And then all hell literally breaks loose because Abraham can't trust in God and God's timing of the promises. And he just starts fathering children all over the place instead of waiting for the child God had for him. And what happens is that Abraham and his wife are 100 years old, and God comes to them and says, hey, you're going to have that kid. And Sarah laughs, and Abraham says, what, what, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Now remember, ancient people weren't stupid, and they knew how babies were born. 
right? And so they knew. They knew that what the angel was telling them was impossible. The gist of that story, and I think this is going to be really important in this background, the gist of that story is that Abram and Sarah live in a land filled with fertility gods. Every single time we excavate a home in ancient Israel, you know what we find? Fertility god statues. For a people who were allowed to have no carven images, who would worship Yahweh only, they all had fertility god statues because having a baby and having crops were the quickest vehicle to economic stability for these people. And so Abram and Sarah are given a baby where the fertility gods of the world had failed them. Where the story of the Canaanite gods had been a failure, Yahweh steps in. And the entire point of that story is to say, Yahweh can where your gods cannot. Right? That undergirds the entire Jewish story. That one happenstance is an undergirding of the entire Jewish story. And if it's an undergirding of the Jewish story, it's an undergirding of our story. Because all of the people we look to for wisdom and for advice and for insight into the scriptures were deeply, devoutly, and profoundly Jewish. And they remembered back to Father Abraham. Now, we get to Luke chapter 1. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, but both of them were righteous in the sight of God. That's a high compliment. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were very, both very old. So, here we have a story, 1,500 years old, of Abraham and Sarah not having to have children. And here we have the faithful, righteous, blameless servants of God, 1,500 years later, living in the land, not able to have children. That parallel is really, really intentional and really, really important. Here, here is faithful Israel in the face of crushing disappointment because they can't have children. Here's faithful Israel living in infertility and shame and dishonor because everybody thought that infertility was a sign of, of God's judgment. And they don't know what to do. They believe. They believe in God. They do what God has asked them to do, and it doesn't work. Look at verse 11. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice in his birth. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here, Zechariah, here's the thing. Here's the thing your story has always waited for, not just your story. Zechariah, the thing that you want, the, the thing you've longed for your whole life, it's coming, and with it will come the redemption of all of your people. Zechariah, your small story will now be part of the big story. Zechariah, God is able where nobody else can. Rome cannot give you a baby, Zechariah, but Yahweh can. You, because you have been faithful and righteous and blameless in the Lord, you 
Zechariah will be the means through which this comes. It's a miraculous story. And my thought is Zechariah should immediately go, I'm just like Abraham. I know this story. I am just like Abraham. I've heard this story before. The thing God has done, God is going to do again through me. The faithful, the righteous, the blameless. That's what scripture calls him. That's not what Zechariah does. Zechariah in Luke 1.18, Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Look, I'm about to crack all over Zechariah. That's a fair question, right? <laughs> That's an entirely reasonable question he asks. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now, now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Now, like I said, we should be careful with our judgment of Zechariah because he asked a reasonable question given the data presented to him. Zechariah knew he was too old to have kids. He knew his wife was too old to have kids. He knew. He has a data set, and his question is reasonable. The disconnect that Gabriel gives to Abraham is to say, there is new data on hand. I have stood in the presence of God, and I come to you to tell you this is what's going to happen, Zechariah. It's a quick turnaround. We can forgive his befuddlement, but what's happened is that Zechariah is allowing what he has always known to be the only story that he's available, that's available to him. Zechariah has lost, to go with what Justin said last week, Zechariah has lost the ability of awe and wonder that a new thing could come around where there had just been old things. Zechariah has lost the history of his people, the sure sign that God can give you a child no matter what the circumstance. And because of that, he's lost the hope that God could do anything in the future. And he lives in an eternal, mundane now that he controls with the things that he understands. Gabriel has invited Zechariah into the story to be part of the entire redemption of the world, the fulfillment of prophecy, the new Elijah ahead of the new moment, of the new Moses. But for that to be true, to be open to the new thing, Zechariah has to let go of the things he knows to be true. Right? Zechariah has to take all of his life, all of his history, all of his story, and say, I know this, but what if I'm wrong? What if all the things told to me have been wrong? That's a hard jump. What thing are you sure of right now? What thing do you know that God can do? What limits do we have on the God of the universe? What, what story have we bought into that says God can only do this? This right now will always be the way it is. And I have to live in this circumstance, or I have to live in this way, or I have to do this thing, because that's the way it is, and I can control this. I started to list them out, and then this sermon turned into about four hours because I'm an anxious person. And so I grab control of everything all the time. I have to be shooed out of the audio booth all the time because I'm back there fiddling with things that I don't know what they do because I'm just trying to do something to have some control over the chaos that is a Sunday morning here, right? 
<laughs> Casey's already threatened to turn my mic off today. Um, right? Zechariah knows a thing, and the thing he knows is limiting. And so he's not open to the blessings of God. Brothers and sisters, what do we know about God that is limiting? Where did you get, where do we get that knowledge? So, like, I, I've told the story before. My first introduction to anything Christian, there were two. In like 1988, 60 Minutes did a story on the new evangelicals. And it was about like, it was about sort of the rise of this sort of like religious political group. And I don't remember any of the details of the story, but I remember those people weren't to be trusted. Um, 60 Minutes did not like these folks at all. Um, And then that year... That year, so it must have been going into like, it must have been like a new year of 1990. There was like a Reader's Digest in my school, like guide post or whatever it was. And it like, the big question was, is the end of the world coming in the next 10 years? And how will you get ready for it? And I was like, I I don't know, right? I know that my parents don't like me most of the time. And God's going to, what's God going to do? I'm in a lot of trouble if this thing goes south for the next 10 years. I'm wearing like pentagram shirts at the time. And like, I was real hardcore. So I like like Motley Crue or whatever. Um, I was sure, I was sure that Christians were bad for the world. I was sure that whatever test God had for us, I was going to fail it because I'd failed everybody else's test. I put a limit on what God could do in my life because I was terrified and fearful, resentful. I didn't know how to be there. And then I grew up in a tradition um, that really emphasized sort of the judgment of God is just sort of a a standard baseline. And it was years later, after Kim and I got married, that we went to a church that was like, no, no, man, God loves you. I was like, what? I've never heard this. What are you talking about? What does that mean that God loves me, right? I came from background that limited my understanding about what God could do in the day-to-day moments of my life, and I still bear that baggage today. My default when things are stressful, when things are bad, when things are questionable, when things are out of control, my default will be to go back to that baggage all the time. I will Zachariah things all the time. So how do we get, how do we move out of that? So my theory is that Zachariah needs to do things. Zachariah needs to understand that he's part of a story, not his story. Zechariah has to start looking at his life as part of the bigger story. And you would think that a priest of Israel would get that. All of their ritual, all of their stuff uh, at temple services was designed to reenact the story of God on a regular basis all the time. Here's a reenactment of the creation. Here's a reenactment of of Abraham choosing us. Here's a reenactment of the Exodus. Everything they do is a constant play where they react and reenact the stories of their ancestors. Zechariah had come to see the world only as his story. Brothers and sisters, we are too small to be the focus of the story. It is too great a burden for us to bear to be the center of the story. And there is so much life and freedom when we are but a part of this cool thing that God's doing over here. Zechariah has to remember, and he does that, I think, by remembering his past. Right, by going back and saying, this is what God does. God gives you life where there is none. God gives you water in deserts. God gives you plants in, in, in desert places. God gives you overthrow of empires by impoverished people. It's, it's an amazing story in the Old Testament if we will just read it 
meditate on it, let God's spirit speak to us through it. But we don't. We don't. Think of the story that controls your story right now. Think of the media inputs that you take in. Think of the things that dictate to you the way the world works. Um, There's a fantastic study coming out about um, how TikTok functions. I've gotten old enough where I'm full like rail against TikTok all the time. Um, great story. So, so TikTok in China will float to the top. They'll, they will push stories that show kids working together and kids accomplishing things together, right? Because China really wants to focus on this sort of idea that we all work together, like in a communist society, we, we, we do these things. And they're, they're using TikTok as a social media, as a social formation tool to get their children used to working together. In America, they show like, hillbillies blowing things up with trucks, right? <laughs> it's, it's amazing how effective they are at this. China has understood that the media is formational. What media are we taking in and is it formational for you? Does it? Does it have a past? Does it have a future? And do those things contribute to your present? Most of the time, the answer is No. Most of the time, we are objects of somebody else's profit-generating machine, which does not care about us or about our story or about the story. They have one story in mind, and that's profit generation. And they're good at it. Man, they're great at it. But that story is dictating our story. The other thing that Zechariah, I think, is going to have to do is he's going to have to be open to things that he knows contradicts He's going to be open to things that contradicts what he already knows. Where we see hopelessness, we counter and say, but we, we worship a God of hope. The audacity of our Jewish brothers and sisters to have joy in their exile. The audacity of Isaiah to talk of joy in the middle of the destruction of their society is the wildest thing I've ever seen. Because Isaiah doesn't care. Because he says, what Isaiah is saying is, I know, I know this is over right now, but I know there's something coming. I know there's more. And I don't know how we get to more. And I don't know how more manifests itself. But I know that there's more. Where is God going to meet us in ways that we weren't expecting that is still faithful to the way he's always done things? Right? The wild thing here is that God didn't change for Zechariah. God remained wildly consistent and the way he decided to do this. And it's Zechariah who lost the story. I'm going to invite the band to come back down as we ponder this final thought. The gospel gives you, the story of Jesus gives you this wild freedom to be ridiculously wrong about everything you've ever known. Everything you've ever known can be changed, can be redeemed, can be restored, can be renewed. And the gospel asks you to boldly go out and boldly proclaim and then boldly admit where you were wrong. And just say, and just say, yeah, yeah, I was dumb about that. I think about the amount of youth group kids, I used to be a youth pastor, the amount of youth group kids I need to call and be like, guys, I am so sorry. Because I knew and I thought about God differently 15 years ago than I think about God today right? Because God is ever, ever more. And so my challenge and my hope for us as a church, as a group, is that we can do a couple of things, is that we can be deeply invested in a bigger story that preceded us, that we can see what God is doing, that we can see how God moves, that we can see where God is, 
and that we can take that story and say, well, if God's done that before, God can do that again. If God has done that before, God can do that again. And then we're open to the miraculous. It makes folks uncomfortable in today's world. There is no escaping the miraculous when we come to the Christmas story. The rest of the year, the rest of the year, you can wipe away the miraculous. You can say, yeah, 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 be nice to people. Yeah, 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 serve people. Yeah, 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 whatever, Jason. We're going to be good neighbors. You cannot avoid the miraculous at Christmas. Zechariah tried, and man, the thing that Zechariah got that helped him pass that was nine months of being quiet, right? The angels hushed him, and he didn't get his voice back until he decides to follow with the angel's advice. Maybe in this season of noise, a period of quiet will open us up to the miraculous. As we come forward today to take communion, what we do is we proclaim the supernatural. We proclaim that the Son of God was born, took on a body, and died. That enough blows the minds of the Greeks and the Jews in the ancient world that God was born and that he died. And he comes back to life. As you come down and take communion, come and take the bread, dip it in the juice. Um, ask, ask God where he's showing up in a new way in your life. Ask God where he's being present in a way that you can't see for a host of reasons. I'm going to pray. Lord, we... Um, we welcome your presence here. We welcome the way that it invites us to ponder a new thing, to never be done, to never be sure that this is over, to never be overwhelmed, Lord, to say, God has done this before. God can do this again. Lord, we inherit stories and we try to baptize stories and we try to take stories and make them yours. Help us, Lord, to come out of those things and come into your story. Help us to trust, help us to believe. Lord, help us to be open to the new way you're doing old things. In Jesus' name, amen.